Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. I first came across Daniel Coffin when I listened to his popular 2008 rhetoric class after the entire semester of lectures was made available online for free by UC Berkeley. His powerful and enthusiastic approach to teaching a traditional academic subject impressed me, and I've been following his career ever since, or at least I thought I had been. As I found out in this interview, there's more to this philosopher, blogger, writer, podcaster, and teacher than I ever knew. In this episode, Daniel tells us how he stays motivated after more than a decade of freelancing, and how he knits together the seemingly unrelated strands of his successful and distinctive career. As the interview started, I asked Daniel about his many active projects, and how he manages to keep them all going while still supporting himself. I mean, I have my blog, I'm on a bunch of different podcasts, I do my own podcast, I have wrote a book. So I mean, it's like I have an exchange with the world around my ideas. So that's right. You've got a lot of things going on. And we're going to try to add some links to all of those things in the show notes. But what keeps you going financially? Because not all of those things could be paying the bills. Yeah, no, no, they don't pay the bills at all. I love the title of your podcast, because I feel like I hack the process. So I... <laughs> You know, since since I got my degree, I've always had other work. And I was lucky enough in 1998 when I filed to fall in with a great startup. And it wasn't a lot of money, but we won every award under the sun. What startup was that? It was called artandculture.com. Mm -hmm. And it was this multidiscipline guide to the arts. And it, we used this fake map, a visual thesaurus style, 3D way of making us both vertical and horizontal associations between artists. So if you were looking at Henry Miller, you might also see Led Zeppelin because they were related through various keywords or attributes. And we had a certain algorithm that would make these relationships. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And so I, it wasn't money, but I learned I'd never been on the World Wide Web before. I wrote my dissertation. I used to tell that to get my mail. I didn't have graphic capability. I wrote it on a Mac Classic. <laughs> you know? That is just amazing. Given when you were teaching and when you graduated, this is all happening all around you. Yeah. And I just was oblivious, you know, I'm like reading Nietzsche, you know, like I just fell in with this group of people. Now my best friend, you know, is an incredible artist and we made this incredible thing. We didn't make a lot of money, but we partied and made a beautiful thing for like two years. You know, I think eventually we would have made money. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that still doesn't answer how you managed to support yourself with all of these wonderful things you're doing. <laughs> right. So because of that, though, I was able to sort of transform myself first as a UX person. And then finally, as like a brander, brand strategist, namer. And so that's what I do. You know, I do brand strategy and naming, but all I need is a few projects a year. And so, you know, my work will come, I'll do a few projects, but that keeps me funded. That's interesting. Now, brand strategy, that's one of those esoteric fields people hear about, and they think about these experts in the glass boxes, often the financial district somewhere who are stepping in in their nice pleated skirts and coming in and explaining everything to people. That's not quite the image that I get of you. Yeah, no, no, no. It's actually, it's more like boys in uh, skinny jeans and sneakers. Yeah, what I do, I mean, I go in and I usually work with uh, executive teams, the teams that were responsible, 
you know, run these workshops. I'm just trying to figure out what it's all about. You know, I mean, I had a few startups. I even have this problem right now with the book I wrote where I need to try to pull out what it's all about. But when I'm on the inside of it, I see everything. I see all the nuance. I see, I want to say so many different things. And this is what happens when I go into clients is they, they're running this business. Last sort of big project I have is probably, I did this for Medium Publishing, the blog publishing platform. And this had so many ideas about what they wanted to be doing. And they're sort of all over the place and you want to list everything. But a brand or argument is not a list of things, right? You got to make it more coherent. So I just work with them to say, okay, let's prioritize. Let's weave this into an argument. Maybe two sentences. At the end of maybe eight hours, 16 hours of meeting, I'm going to get you down to two sentences. And then there's some support copy and all that kind of stuff about what we're about. But really just like, what are we doing here? And then how does that shape the product? How does that shape our culture? How does that shape who we hire? How does that shape incentives? How does that shape messaging and marketing? How does it shape digital strategy, right? If you say you're about this, it means something. If you say you're about that, BMW says it's about performance. Volvo says it's about safety. You need to do certain things then, right? In both your product and how you talk to the world. I, I can see how this ties directly into what you lecture about in rhetoric with performative language. I'm curious how you transformed yourself into somebody people would call in and trust to do this kind of work. It's a little flukish. And I, again, I think I was lucky because of the timing. 1998, everyone was getting hired, right? And the fact that I had a doctor and I could write, you're going to hire. No one knew what they were doing. And I was quickly writing specs and running the engineers and also writing the voice. And you just sort of figured it all out. Like you just, no one else knew really what they were doing. So you learn a lot about business. You're in the fundraising meetings. You're going to VCs. You just learn a tremendous amount very, very quickly. And I learned it on the company's dime. And then the two things I do, like the philosophy and the branding seem really, in a way, they're very different, but they really cohere at the side of what I do and what I can do and what I like to do, which is conceptualize and see how things work together and, and articulate it <laughs> succinctly, hopefully succinctly, it babbles on. No, I definitely see how they relate to each other. And as you said, you were kind of learning it as you go, but it's also a field that people study and get degrees in in order to learn how to do. I'm curious how you learned the mechanics of doing this. Again, it's just, I think probably back to my rhetorical training, but sizing up any situation, what are the factors? What's happening here, right? So you go in, you want to talk about a company and what they're doing. Well, you got to kind of know about revenue. And you say, okay, what is your revenue model? Where could revenue come from? You got to understand that. So that made me have to learn about revenue sources. And if you want to think about partners, where in the pipeline you need to exist, where in the, the journey, if you, to use that awful word, you want to fall. And it just made me begin thinking about having to see the context, right? Which is really all any argument is, any, reading any book. I read Kant, I read Hegel, I read Nietzsche understanding a business is a lot simpler. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, it's, it's never that complicated. It's just, you got to put your foot down. What's, what's difficult is making a decision. And that's not my job. That's the client's job. My job is to say, this is what you got to work with. I can see that. So how do you find your clients? I mean, how do you market yourself in a field like this? I've been, again, lucky enough. I've worked with a few agencies, you know, so a lot of my work will come through an agency, let's say. And so... They need to staff up or they need a gray hair in the room or they need work with a web shop. Everyone's really young and they need someone to handle the client at the strategic level. And it's the CEO of some big company like a medium. You know, I did it for Fitbit, right? You got to have 
but that was again through an agency. So meet people along the way and people like you and they know what you do and they move on to another agency or they go in house somewhere and they call you. And I've been lucky enough just to mostly work by word of mouth, never had to market myself. So creating that network and, uh, and maintaining it over the years is, is probably a critical part of this then. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly just to me been about just doing good work and just hoping that the word spreads and it sometimes it gets quiet. It's a weird life. I've been doing it for over 15 years. Sometimes it gets quiet and sometimes I'm doing a ton of work and sometimes I'm not doing so much work and it can be scary when I'm not doing so much work, <laughs> you know, the money begins to dry up. Then all of a sudden the money pours in and I'm busy for three months, but then that can keep me going for another year. I think a lot of freelancers out here can relate to the feast and famine approach. Exactly. So when you get an engagement with a client, what is your process? How do you work with them? So one thing I learned really from this guy, Gordon Rudow who started a company called Bonfire Communications and was bought by Lippincott. One thing I learned from him is the importance of making sure the client follows your process, like having the process and sticking to it, right? Because clients are like, well, your discovery phase doesn't sound like it's going to work. Or I can't get everyone in a room for a workshop. Then I can't do the project. Like you're asking me to shortcut certain things. So a process is important. And my process really is getting smart quickly about something give me all the background material. I don't do primary research. I make the client do all that. They got to send me everything they got. You know, I'll poke around a little just to learn, but I'm not be responsible for anything like that. <laughs> you know, I don't do focus groups. I don't, I might do a competitive audit, but mostly I want them to tell me who the competitors are. That's interesting. Do you direct them in how to do that kind of research? Because I know that a lot of people in your, in roles like yours, they want to be very hands-on with that. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting is CMOs and in-house marketers are really good at the quant stuff. They know the competitors. They think they know the competitors. They have a list of competitors and they have a list of sort of facts about their audience. Because those are two huge parts of building an argument. You got to know who your audience is. You got to know the lay of the market. So one thing I'll often end up doing, especially in the workshop, is pushing against the things that they think are correct. So they say, this is how we break down our audience. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. You broke it up demographically. I think really you need to break it down psychographically. I remember doing this project for Chevron Energy and they have a very wide group of audiences from like local schools to enormous military contract. But that difference wasn't as interesting or as important or as engaging as who are we selling to and what do they want to accomplish? Are these people who want to make a mark? So that became an audience. People who want to make a mark on their field, who want to leave behind something. Then there are people who are like, scared who don't want to ruffle anything. And we just broke it down like that because that was a more telling way. It was a different story, different things. Of course, to a school or a military contractor, you need to tell them different facts, but your mode of appeal, actually you're trying to appeal to who they are. And a person who just runs a local school district or in charge of all the prisons in the state of New York, they might be really similar that they are both scared of doing too much or spending too much money, going too far in one direction or something. And they need to hear the same kind of thing about Chevron and Chevron energy rather than different things. I love how you look at the broader categories and make these connections almost like the way you described that startup you were working with. Yeah. And that part of the process is really important and interesting and has, I think, almost the greatest impact because it shifts the way the whole company considers its audience and then considers the competition. I mean, I remember the Fitbit strategy, they had one product in the market. They were still a startup. They were not ubiquitous. They had one little thing 
um, no wearables, nothing else. And they knew they wanted to grow and we were doing the competitive analysis. And this was, I don't even know how long ago, over five years ago, we put Apple up on there as a competitor. The health app didn't exist yet, but it was obviously coming. Right. So there was the obvious competition. There was Jawbone and Nike, you know, the other sport wearables. But we saw the bigger competition being someone like an Apple. That's interesting. And when you position yourself against somebody that huge, you have to think really far outside the box in order to accomplish something. Yeah. And maybe it's no longer thinking about its competition. Right. So we began trying to get out of the thinking of competitive audits and just thinking about landscape and thinking about ways to work together. Because sometimes you complement something rather than working against it. Maybe you can work with Apple and you complement. Part of that can begin to seem just like a beautiful app that fits within the environment. So it's kind of competitive from a price standpoint, but it's complementary in terms of the user and everything syncing together. I can see how this also ties in with client relations and how you keep your clients happy, positioning them as, you know, you're thinking about this small field. You could be thinking about this huge area, probably engages your clients and keeps them more happy working with you as well. Yeah. I mean, the fact is I'm not like a Bain or McKinsey, these classic consultants who come in and really break down your P&L, but there is a lot that I do that does impact those things. I'm not running models. I don't do revenue models or regressive analyses or anything like that. Well, who are we going after? And then thinking about the audience play, is your audience made up of different silos or are they concentric circles where you go after the hardcore person in the middle? But there's a group around there who identifies with the hardcore person in the middle, right? GoPro was sort of a model like that. The surfers in the middle, the hardcore athletic people. But my kid also wants one, but because he thinks those surfers are cool and those skateboarders are cool, right? So it's not a separate audience. I can say the same message to both of them, right? Because that's a different model than if you have these silos where everything's, they need to hear something different. I love that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because it's like seeing where you can leverage one message across multiple constituencies and achieve a broader market penetration where your product really applies. Exactly. And it's much easier, of course, to maintain one message than 40 messages, you know? Absolutely. You're a brand strategist. You want to have a brand, a message. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it is a funny thing. Like it is almost like the taste of this design world where we just want everything simple and clean, you know, don't make anything too complicated. <laughs> So you, uh, you mentioned one thing that really caught my attention earlier. You were talking about making sure that your client follows your process. Do you have a structured process that you take your clients through? Yeah, I do. And sometimes it has to deviate just because something else is going on. They need something slightly different. So there's a few different sort of exercises I can run through in workshops. You know, it depends how much I need to focus, let's say, on the product. Maybe the product isn't so well-defined and they might not know that yet. I did a project, better just not to mention who it was, <laughs> Okay, but it was big and it was a very big play and they wanted us to sort of do a naming branding, realize that their product just wasn't defined yet. And that everyone we talked to had a different vision of what the product was. I turned the workshop into a product scope and functionality. Like what does it do at what point? What's the rollout of it? What does it do at each stage? Because that's going to change our brand, right? Until we know that, I can't even brand this thing. I can't tell you what it's all about because I don't know what it's all about. That's interesting. So you structure these things when you, when you work with a client, you structure it as a workshop engagement? Usually, ideally, sometimes if it's remote, I've been trying to do remote Google Hangout workshops just to say, you know, if it's clients that want to save on money or travels hard for me to have a kid and all that and single father. So it's not always the easiest thing, but yeah, ideally, ideally the workshop works the best. It's incredible experience. 
you get all decision makers in a room. I work with them to make sure the right people are in the room, which is tricky because it's not just the CEO and the CMO and those people. Sometimes there's a key influencer who's further down in the hierarchy, but it's a person who's quite loud and quite influential, right? Or sometimes you don't want that person in the room, but I need to talk to them about their politics and who needs in on this decision. That's really interesting because I know the organizational dynamics when you're trying to find those influencers, how much time do you spend working with a company in order to identify just to start with those people? Well, it depends on the size. I did an interesting project pro bono for the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival, and they wanted to sort of to rename a parent company, right? Because they're more than a film festival, right? And so they were having issues with donors just saying, well, you're a week long film festival. Here's $10,000. But they do year-long programming, they have residencies, they go into schools, they, they're actually a much bigger than a film festival. So they just needed donors to truly understand that, and they needed a name to reflect that. So that they're now the Jewish Film Institute. Interesting. But that, a lot of that process was walking through the politics of it and working with the director, who was awesome, and then with the team, because it couldn't just be a top-down decision. She was a new director, it's a hallowed institution, people very emotionally tied to it. And it became tricky. I remember one point being in the meeting and presenting various possibilities to them. People getting very irritated and very upset with me. I'm the outsider. What are you doing here? But over time, just explain it. I have no vested interest. I'm here to work with all of you to make it all work. And it really just became this democratic, just weaving together everyone's arguments and just being able to assuage, incorporate, where to hedge. Sometimes I'll stand up and be like, no, I just don't think that's right. And I'll have to explain why. And then I actually did the pitch to the board for that particular name, just because it helped it with the politics, right? To have someone else there who could speak to it. And it just went clear through. It was smooth sailing. Dealing with the politics in nonprofits is almost as challenging as dealing with the politics in academia, I believe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So what I'm curious about is you kind of taught yourself how to do this. You've created this process. You've created these workshops that you lead people through. While you were going through that process, I'm curious, what did you find that wasn't working for you that you needed to pivot? Did you have the situations where you learned something that you didn't expect from what you were trying? To be honest, the workshop itself was new to me. So I had originally used to just do one-on-ones. I used to be like, okay, just let me talk to a bunch of different people one-on-one and then I'll go away and I'll come back with the answer. And I found that that was incredibly inefficient because you come back, you got to give them a range of positions, they're noodling it, they're all over the place still. But I found the workshop, which again, I really done them before with other people, but learned a lot from Gordon. Just want to give him the shout out, the props he deserves. (laughs) We will include a link to his stuff in the show notes too. (laughs) But just the way you just build consensus. And so that I learned then when I play something back to clients, when they get their first deliverable back from me, they just get one thing. They don't get options. They don't get a range. They get one thing. And that was just like, whoop, just made everything more efficient because we had already agreed to, we've already come there. And then we tweak it and refine it and hit it. And there's some revisions. So that was already a huge jump for me to move from just working one-on-one, a little cocky, a little like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> to say, you know what? I, I need to work with you guys. You know better. I'm going to help facilitate more than just be the brains who go in the other room. I think sometimes when you come in in that kind of a role, and this is one of the benefits of being an outsider, you have the opportunity to see what those dynamics are and to almost act as a group psychologist for the team. It's funny. I say that all the time. That's a lot of what the job is. People sometimes tease like consulting is silly, but I, I think it's, it's essential. I think, like I was saying earlier, I have this book and I need to write an article that speaks to subjects in the book so that 
the press can push the article out there and help establish me as an expert in this particular field. And I was like, well, there's so many ways to say what my book is about. And there's so many things I could pull out to write that article, but I'm kind of having a problem. I see too many of the connections. What I need is an outside consultant who's not as invested, not as vested, and just say to me, oh, come on, coffee, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the key point. Well, so let's talk about this book, because I know you do have a book coming up. We're not just talking theoretically here. Yeah, so this book is from my other life as a, I guess, a philosopher, a rhetor. It's coming out in August. It's on zero books. And it's called? It's called Reading the Way of Things Towards a New Technology of Making Sense. That sounds like such a Daniel Kofin title. (laughs) (laughs) And it is. So if you listen to those lectures, it's of that. It's still an argument that I, I believe in what I think critique is and how to critique things and how to make sense of the world generously and beautifully and with an eye to complexity and multiplicity and difference. And So for this Daniel Kofin branded book, what is that target market? Who is that client you're targeting with this book? I actually, so I wrote it as a, I think ideally it would become a staple in various syllabi for critical theory classes on art, film, literature, composition, just any sort of critical writing or critical thinking class, because it definitely has a perspective and it sets itself up in counter distinction from another kind of critique, right? So ideology critique or genre critique. It sets itself up as a particular school relating to a certain school of philosophers, and this is a way to do it. And so it actually has a how-to. The last chapter is how to do it. You know, how do you teach this? What do you do? How do you begin writing like this and performing critiques like this? Interesting. So when you set out to write this, was it that you noticed a gap in the literature in academia that you felt needed to be filled and you found a way to fit yourself into that gap? Yeah, I mean, it was less strategic than that, more just born of a certain frustration about the assumptions people make, the way people talk about movies, and then the way they're taught. You know, I taught critical writing for many, many, many years. And the students, you know, this is Berkeley, students are all supposedly these superstars. But they all had this sort of idiotic way of writing criticism that had served them all through school. So I knew that the school systems were teaching this. And what they were teaching was a certain kind of hierarchical critique. You begin with a sort of an axiom and a general big assumption, and then you lay out your evidence below hand to support this big claim. So, you know, the hilarious like lines I used to get on first papers were things like, man has long considered the question of truth. <laughs> Nietzsche, in his book, I'm like, who's man? Is this true? Are you an historian? I don't know what man is. I don't know long considered means. I don't know what truth means. I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. So I was trying to come up with this other mode of analysis. But then it sort of pervades everything. So it pervades public discourse. And so I see this mode of critique as, as revolutionary as well. And sort of, I see it in elections. And one reason I don't participate in like, public discourse. I can't follow these elections and things or the way people talk about movies or the way people talk about sports. There's such set ways to talk about things. For instance, I say, I from San Francisco, I like baseball. Oh, you're a Giants fan. Well, actually, I don't believe in fandom. I think fandom is the least interesting relationship to sports. I think I love a good game. I like the Giants because I get to see a lot of good games. I like the type of baseball they play. They're on my local TV. I get to see them a lot. But I'd rather see a game where the Giants lose 4-3 to than win 16-0. 16-0 is a boring, poorly played game. 
a four to three loss is a, is a hard one game. I want to see a good baseball game. If I say this kind of thing, which I've been known to do in bars, I face physical violence. My point being that there's a discourse, that there are these discourses that reign about things, you know, about sports, about movies, about life, about romance, about sex, about school. And I just want to begin somewhere different. I want to teach people to begin, just make your own sense of it, make a different kind of sense of it. What if everyone made a different sense? What if we began all conversations and I don't know what people think before the conversation began. And then people could say all kinds of crazy things about, let's say, elections. It's always, I'm, that Trump's an idiot. I, I think Hillary's no good. I like Bernie's no good. It's all the same language. I don't, I don't even know why there are political parties. I, everything falls into these very neat categories. And then people just recapitulate them. So you see it in comments on Facebook. Everybody just, there's no surprises. No one has a surprising take on any of it. You're either a hawk or you're not a hawk. You know, you're a fascist or you're not a fascist. It's too simplistic. When I, what do I find when I actually look at the world is things are complicated. And I just want to initiate or help initiate ways to talk about things that celebrate and magnify the complexity. So one of the things that, that strikes me as I'm hearing you talk about this is the subject matter that you're talking about that people are having discourse on. It's a very popular, common subject matter. But... I'm betting that your book is written from a more academic perspective and might be more well appreciated by somebody who has an academic background. The luxury I had of not being in the academy and of working with this press, Zero Books, they're a great press and they're really committed to the public intellectual and critical thinking outside of institutions. And so I think my books kind of pop, like it has a couple chapters with some citations, but otherwise there's not a lot of citations. I'm actually glad to hear that because I feel like what you're talking about is something that could fit very, very nicely into the common dialogue if yeah. people could appreciate it. That's my goal. So there's a couple times in it I'll dive in deeper to sort of philosophical implications that might or might not interest somebody. But then I talk about diet. I talk about watching movies. It's all the movies I and I talk about are pop. I talk about The Matrix and Bound, the Wachowskis' first two movies and how they perform differently in, in relationship to each other. The movie The Ring, <laughs> you know? Some other ours, William Burroughs, talk a lot about William Burroughs, some other things I know. Talk about what it is to work, being in the workplace. If you're trying to be critical, what does it mean to be critical in the workplace? What kind of tactics do you have? Because you can often get fired, right, for certain things. So how do you find your place, especially if you're dealing with, let's say, a moron boss or something? Like, how can you be critical and alive and amplify a difference and while still working within a structure that might not have your best interests in mind? There's a chapter on that. It's written for me as sort of a pop book. That's interesting. And I'm really glad to hear that too, because I wasn't sure what to expect when I heard Daniel Kelfin was, was publishing a book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never liked academic writing. Even my dissertation, I never read other academics. So that's how I could never have a career because I never, you look at my bibliography from my dissertation, it's all primary sources, Nietzsche, Merleau-Ponty, Hegel. There's nothing else there. Like, academics have this very distinct way of sort of sucking the life out of ideas and murdering them. <laughs> That's interesting. So when you're doing work with a client, you abstain from all of the primary sources, but when you're talking about your philosophy, you go directly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. One way it might relate is that when I'm dealing with clients and their businesses, I, I hate the notion of best practices, which in a way to me is like dead discourse, best practices, you know? There might be things that are in so-called best practices that you like and think are good, 
but the concept of best practices really irritates me, right? Because companies are different. People need to do different things. I'm sure you found that the scrum works in some situations and not in other situations and at certain times and not at other times, right? It's a great tool, but it's doesn't necessarily work with every team or in every environment or... Absolutely. I've been consulting on Scrum for years and there are certain types, you know, there are types of projects that it's not appropriate for and certain types that it's very appropriate for. And it's that disconnect that creates the controversy in my field because people have been forced to follow a best practice that's not a best practice for them. Exactly. It's exactly that moment, right? And that's what I'm trying to talk about. Like, it's true with anything. Just because this is the way things are talked about doesn't mean we need to continue talking about it this way. Trying to figure out what's in this circumstance, for these bodies, these people trying to accomplish these things, what is best? Back in those old lectures, I used to call it circumstantial propriety, that there is a propriety. There's something to be done here that's good and right, but it's local to those circumstances and to my perspective, as opposed to a global best practices. I don't think there is such a thing. See, that's actually the kind of thinking that drew me to Scrum in the first place, because it, it forces teams of people to think about what works for us in this circumstance, not what is always applicable to everybody. Yeah, I love it. I love that idea. And I was introduced to the Scrum many years ago on a project, and it, it was brilliant. This is, duh, right? Gets everybody talking, lets things move. Try to actually explain to my son. I said I was talking to you today, and it's the kind of stuff you've talked about. And I explained to him the idea of the Scrum. <laughs> and the importance of it, right? That otherwise you end up with developers writing error messages, right? For customers, when a developer should never be writing that error message. The product guy needs to do that. The UX guy needs to do that, the, the, right? Like everyone needs to work together here. And it's especially in software, right? Where it's distributed authorship, right? Mm -hmm. All need to be working in conjunction. Yeah. So in your role, you need to stay up on the current practices. I know one of the things that's been emerging as a best practice for startups is this whole lean iterative model. And yep. has this changed the way that you consult with your clients? Yeah, it's funny, especially with startups. So it depends on my client. So often I'm working with very, like Adobe has been a long time client of mine, or it's a very different kind of world. It moves at a different pace. They can take different kinds of risks. Working with startups, it is funny. And I've actually had to modulate a little bit because sometimes they don't need a full-blown brand strategy because you don't, we don't know where we are yet. We need to just put a stake in the ground. So it is a brand strategy, but it's, let's say, let's just say this is what we are now but we're willing to move off of it. Startups are harder to work with because people are much more passionate and they see much more on the line. They're much more tense. And of course, money is a bigger issue to them. So they're a little more hostile to me just by nature. The other people in the room, you know, other people hire me, but because I'm getting paid, right? And they know money is scarce. And big companies, they don't care. But I actually look forward to working with more startups. And I think my process works better for a big company, for a company with a big vision. And that's already doing something. And I've had to begin thinking about how to modulate things for startups. That's interesting. It's a whole different market and you kind of have to decide where you're going to target yourself as the brand Daniel Kofin. Yeah. And for them, it's, you want to be lean for them because it's not right. They don't need a huge brand book this big on, this is who we are. And our, it's like, we don't know, man. Let's see how this plays. Let's go this direction. Let's put our, let's make a claim, follow this, but it might not work. We don't know. Right? <laughs> So do you see this book that you're writing and the blogging that you're doing and the podcast that you're running, do you see that as independent of Daniel Kofin, the, the brand strategist, or do these all kind of play together? In terms of my audience, and they are different. And there's no doubt there are certain people in my philosophical world who don't 
know what I do professionally and don't like it. I mean, I was on the Partially Examined Life podcast. They're sort of the biggest philosophy mm -hmm. podcast. It's a great people into philosophy should check out Partially Examined Life. But I did this podcast, you know, I was their guest talking about Deleuze, sort of radical psychedelic philosopher. But he'd read the comments down below and somebody was like, I can't believe that this is the crap. This, you know, this guy was teaching people. No, of course he's in advertising. It makes sense. He's soulless. He's right. Like, and I have friends, you know, I have a friend who's written a couple incredible, brilliant, astounding books of poetry, sort of avant-garde, kind of avant-garde poetry. Super interesting, super provocative. He's made some incredible poetry software that'll be live soon. And he's also head of brand at a very large international company. And he likes to keep the world as far apart as possible. He does not want one to know about the other. For me, I'm like, come on, man, I don't care. This is life. And we scramble. Like, I do what I do. I have no problem working with a company on their brand. And I have no problem going and talking about ways to undo capitalism. I don't see these things as mutually exclusive. Personally, I see them as being almost like very tight, tightly integrated. I can see deep connections between them. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of that connection runs through just my thinking and how just a certain kind of operation with tools and with ideas and with being able to piece things together and make sense of them. And that's my pleasure. That's what I enjoy. To me, my biggest problem with branding is not the morality of it. I, I, doesn't, I don't care at all. Like from my Marxist perspective, that part, I don't have a problem with. My biggest problem with it sometimes it's just not that complicated or interesting. Hmm. You know, like, so I'll do it and I'm good at it and I put my heart into it and I'll work well and I want someone to succeed. But I go back to reading Nietzsche and Merleau-Ponty and Deleuze because it's more complicated and it makes me, it works me harder. I read something I don't understand. I've yet to come on a branding project where I'm like, I just don't get this. That's interesting. And I can see where you would want to have an intellectual challenge, which probably is where this book came from, the opportunity to, to fill that void in the way that you see fit. Absolutely. And it's, again, not to make light of branding. It's just not rocket science. You know, it's, there, it involves a particular skill set. I don't think people internally can do it. I think they're blinded by their own company as they should do. They should hire a consultant. I think that's the job of an outside person, like a shrink, like a marriage counselor, right? <laughs> have to come in and identify the patterns and shake them up a little bit and redistribute them and help prioritize them. Absolutely. Listen, I want to ask you a question. You've been running your own career as an independent consultant and freelancer now for it sounds like 17 years. And uh, I know a lot of people struggle with how they can stay motivated and how they can keep themselves going. Do you have like a routine that you follow? You're accomplishing a lot. No, it's funny when I, a lot of people think I'm very lazy, especially when I'm dating. I'm a sprinter. <laughs> I didn't ask you about dating. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what do you do all day? I'm like, eh, I went to the movies, I went for a walk. But all that is part of the same thing. So when I write or when I work, it's, it's a sprint. I work explosively and then I take a long break and then I work explosively and then I take a long break. I've always done that. It's just my metabolism. I need a lot of downtime. If I have a lot of meetings, a lot of things to do running all over, I begin to fall apart. I just, just emotionally, existentially, it doesn't work for me. So I try to pace everything and schedule everything at a certain time, you know, and then when I get my project, I just bang it out. So I, I never bill hourly and I won't work hourly. Because I'm a sprinter. I'm sitting at the computer. You might get it done in three hours, but I went for a long walk. I lay in bed. I was thinking about it. It's, I might be driving. I open my voice memo, say something really quickly. So it's 
do I build for that 18 seconds? It doesn't make sense, right? That insight that came, came from walking on the beach. So that's why I build by project now, not by time. That makes perfect sense. How did you learn that about yourself? I just, I just always done that. I've always been the sprinter. When I write, I just either, I explode and I'll just write, 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 write. And then the minute's done, I have to walk away because there's nothing. I know just sitting in front of a computer screen. And if it's not coming, why sit there? Suit me. Just it's a waste of time. I'd rather go lie on the couch and watch the wire reruns, you know, <laughs> or go to the beach or have a cocktail, make dinner, go shopping, do my laundry, do something else. And then when it comes, I want to sit down and bang it out. So I actually always travel with tools. So I always have my little Rodia pad and pen travels with me, the voice memo. I sit at bars and I'll just scribble something. I'll have that. And then when I go home, I can concentrate and write for two hours. So pen and paper. And then what do you write in? I write on Microsoft Word. Although when I blog, I write directly into the blog screen, into the interface. WordPress or something? Blogger, which is... Similar. Terrible. I mean, it's terrible, but I'm just... I know it. I know it's quirks. I know how to make it work. You know, WordPress, they've had problems a long time ago, at least with getting hacked a lot. So I shied away from them, and I, they probably solved that by now. So you're definitely not tool-driven. You are just focus-driven. Yeah, my tools are simple. It's my pad and paper. All those things like, what is it? Not campfire. What are they all called? What are they all called? Basecamp, whatever. Basecamp and all those things, you know? Yeah, sure. Sometimes they're helpful, but I find them, I got to learn a whole new interface. It's confusing. I can't figure out what's happening there. I understand we need to do it, especially with designers and coders who are distributed sharing certain documents. I find just good communication and a good, especially on a project. If it's a bigger project, like a piece of software, is a good PM, a good project manager is everything. So the people drive, not the tools. I think so, yeah. So I wanted to ask you then, you're a sprinter and you just dive in and you do your projects when you're inspired. So how long did it take you to write your book and how did you do that? Yeah, the book, I write quickly. <laughs> I just do. Because either I'm writing or I'm not writing. So if I'm writing, it's coming quickly. The argument is years, decades in the making. The actual writing... I don't know, you know, a week. I don't know. Like it's, I used to bang out 20 page chapters in a day, you know, and I wouldn't like it. I throw it away, begin again. And again, I don't say that to brag or anything because sometimes it's nonsense. Sometimes I move too quickly. So it's just how I work. No, I understand perfectly. And it's not about bragging. And it's just for, for you, the writing itself is almost like snapping the shutter after the entire scene has been set. Oh my God, that's beautiful. 100%. That is 100% what it is. But I have a good friend, my brander poet friend, you know, he's meticulous, meticulous. Takes him six years to write his first book. Every sentence is perfectly constructed. I just fly, man. I fly. And so some sentences are great. Some maybe not as great, but I just, it's the movement and the rhythm, the performance that intrigues me. So what about interactions with an editor? Since this is your first book, I'm sure you're working with an editor. Yeah. So this press is very, it's hands off. So they just did some line editing. I'll be frank and say that I don't think we totally communicated well on the actual just line editing. On actual notes, they did not provide that. The first manuscript that I sent off, the main publisher, who's someone I know, we've become friends, but I know him from this world, from podcasting and, and philosophy. He had some notes and I rewrote, you know, I wrote a new introduction like a, and reworked some of the book. So that had more of an argument, more of a shape. He helped me. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about here. Give me context. So I banged out. I was wondering how you workshopped the book in terms of like getting feedback from people as you were writing it. He was awesome. He was incredible because his notes were so quick and so, I think he thought he was just sort of throwing something out there, but it was spot on. 
you know, and I think he's just, Doug Lane. I think he's just super smart and has written a lot and just sized it up quickly. And he's like, I, it just sounds too general is what he told me. I don't know what you're, it sounds like you're talking about everything, nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. And so rather than having to write the whole book, I said to frame it. It's like all those things fit because I'm talking about this thing and this problem I'm trying to solve. Because people usually do this, I'm offering this. And I just reframed it or gave it a frame at all. Interesting. If that makes sense. It's nice to get that kind of reflection on what you're writing because you, when it's in your head and you're putting it out there, you can visualize it, but you don't know what's being read. Absolutely. That was brilliant. I mean, I thought it was, it was really helpful and exciting. And because he gave me that note, I knew exactly what he meant. I banged out all the edits in like a week. So I was like, oh yeah, I got it. I know exactly what to do. I know like I'm with you. <laughs> so at this point, are you working with anybody on your marketing or are you doing this yourself? So they do some marketing. We're trying to figure it out. So they're again, a pretty hands up. They're a great press and that they try to publish things that they believe in. Right. So they will publish something, even if they the only thing it's going to sell 20 copies. I mean, they hope mine sells more than 20 copies, but they, if they believe in it, they're going to sell it. And it's a, bigger publisher this is zero books is their imprint and they have like 10 different imprints they're a british company and they have young adults and they have some other kind of stuff that they do this one zero books is this one imprint about sort of more radical critique and public intellectualism the way they run things is you know someone gets assigned and we communicate mostly through their database and i just get these messages and i can see the activities that they've they're doing I see where they've sent the book, who they've sent it to, what they want me to do. I write a little blurb, summarize my book, write an article to support the book. They'll send it to some publishers. Do I have contacts? I upload my contacts. They'll send stuff out to them. The bulk of it will fall to me through social media and stuff to push it. So why did you choose to go with a publisher as opposed to self-publishing? I've always written books. I like writing books. Publishing always seemed like a, a headache, like another job. Right. You got to write a letter. You got to summarize. You got to. And I was like, if I have that kind of time, I'd rather use that time writing or thinking about writing rather than sending somewhere else. And what's the upside to me? What's the upside? Then over the years, especially through my blog and from the podcast, I mean, that Berkeley podcast was really changed my understanding of the Internet and of the world because I started getting people like you, people from all over the world reaching out to me, people doing all these interesting things from these different walks of life. Just like emailing me, sending me things and these conversations with people. I've made some great friends, you know, and it opened me up to the possibility of or the pleasures of actually putting myself out there. We're writing for me is very private. And I just was like, I don't care if anyone ever reads it. I just like to write it. I don't care if anyone, I don't care if I ever read it. It's the writing that gets me going. Just simply the act of sitting there and writing. That's all, that's my main thing. That's all I really want to do. Do I care if anyone reads it? Not so much. But one thing I've discovered is that when people sometimes do read it, it's like, I, I meet some cool people and I learn some cool things, right? I mean, thanks to you, I've learned more about the Scrum and I thought about it, right? And that came because you found me through those lectures. So that's just a great exchange to me. It's beautiful. And I've had that with multiple people. I think you're going to find that more and more, as, especially as you're taking more responsibility for the marketing of your book. Yeah. I lead a pretty isolated life in general. I work for myself. I work from home. I'm not that social. So it becomes a nice kind of outlet. It's the promise of the global world, of the printing press, and then of the internet, right? Is a different kind of community. So where are you thinking about taking your career next? I mean, now you've got a book out. To be honest, I think one, one thing I face in my professional and the branding side of things is aging out a little bit. You know, it's a young field, especially in the Bay Area. You must have seen this, right? I mean, come on. I, I go into these shops and except for one or two people in the office who are generally the founders, I'm the oldest guy in the room. 
I'm only 46, <laughs> but like I'm the oldest guy in the room and I know some things. So I have the notes for, for, for business book. So that would not be through zero books. It'd be from this whole other side and writing a book on what I think brand is and how to do it. I think there's a huge demand for something like that. And it's not only something you could have a book about, but it's something that you can do workshops for. It's something that you can take advantage of your teaching skills. Yeah, exactly. I think like the teaching and the workshop thing, like I love workshops because it is a lot like teaching. And I always preface when I'm running a workshop that I you have to excuse the professorial tone that I sometimes take. <laughs> But it is, I do like it. And I like getting everyone involved and getting everyone in this. And I get a big board. I mean, of course, I use stickies and things because you can't be a brand consultant without post-its and multicolored post-its and things. Just like you can't be a scrum master without index cards. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Got to have those are the tools, right? Those are critical tools. But yeah, I think a brand book, I have the notes. It's really just having the, the inertia. Like I, I had those notes before the notes for this book, the reading book, but I wanted to write the reading book more. I'd like to know how people can get in touch with you. I have my blog, which is emphatic oomph with a U, emphaticoomph.com. And my Twitter, you know, people can always DM me or write me. So just decaffeine. My blog is my main thing. And I post all my podcasts through the blog anyway. Okay. So emphatic oomph is really where people should go to find you. Yep. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you very much again. All right. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>